Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Welcome back to What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. If you were asked to conjure up an image of human strength, what would pop into your mind? Now, I would guess it could be one of our well-known athletes at the peak of their physical power. The care of the body for top performance is admired. So why not that same admiration for the care of the mind? Why should addressing mental health be misconstrued as weakness? Well, of course it shouldn't. But too often, that stigma is still at play. But the leveling of the playing field between physical and mental health may be underway in earnest, with an increasing number of high-profile athletes from Olympians to the NFL making their mental well-being a top priority and doing so in a very public way. In this installment of What Makes Up Your Mind, we explore the unique pressures and expectations carried by elite competitors and the efforts of mental health providers to merge mind with body treatments for whole person health. Fair warning, we also take a look in the mirror as fans to examine what drives the intensity of our adoration and criticism of our chosen athletes and teams. Our experts are from the Stanford Sports Psychiatry and Sports Psychology Program, the nation's first comprehensive mental well-being clinic for athletes. It serves professional and Olympic athletes from around the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as Stanford's NCAA Division I student-athletes. From the psychiatry side of the clinic, we welcome co-founder Dr. Douglas Nordsey, Stanford Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Dr. Francesco Dandekar, Stanford Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and also the Associate Director of the Stanford Sports Psychiatry and Sports Psychology Program. Dr. Douglas Nordsey, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jane. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. And Dr. Francesco Dandekar, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jane. As sports psychiatrists, What's your primary goal with athletes? Is it all performance-related? In the clinic, it's called sports psychiatry and sports psychology. Certainly, the mind-body connection in sports isn't new. We've heard about, for decades, psyching up for competition and mindset for success. But that's not the same as mental health or mental well-being. Yeah, I think, um, to me, performance is a continuum. I think a lot of people think that as sports psychiatrists, you know, we're, our primary goal is to, to enhance performance. And many athletes that we see kind of think that that's, that's just what we do and that's all that we are focused on. And, you know, really, I think Doug and I and all the psychiatry side, you know, we're, our intention is to help people out uh, whenever way they need help. Um, a lot of times it's just addressing mental health in general, which, you know, if, if your mental health is, is more taken care of and, and you feel more integrated and more supported, usually your performance is going to enhance. You know, we, we do do some stuff that does allow people to perform better. Um, the sports psychology folks do a lot of that specifically in terms of just strictly the performance side. My take on it is people are, are holistic creatures, and if you can help out a few different parts of them, um, oftentimes you can help their performance improve as well. 
it just isn't our main focus. If someone says, hey, I don't really want to work on performance stuff, I just want to feel better in relationships or uh, I want to be able to focus better on certain tasks that I, I just am not able to focus on or I have depression or anxiety. You know, our job, the way I see it, is to kind of help people with whatever they're coming into the office with. Dr. Nordzi, did you want to add anything to that? You know, the other important point to make is that, you know, uh, mental health challenges often emerge when people are highly stressed. And, of course, athletes uh, face variety of stresses, both in competition as well as in managing the rest of their life around their athletic career. And so um, while we work with people on managing stress uh, as part of managing their mental health, sometimes people also um, are making key decisions about the level of stress, the level of competition they want to participate in. And Jane, we saw this over the summer at the Olympics and in other high-profile settings that um, you know athletes are sometimes making the decision that always being on, performing all the time may have a negative impact on them and are starting to think about balance and how they might at times step back from one competition in order to focus on their mental health and well-being to be able to um, succeed in their larger career. Boy, and that's a big part of this discussion today. And we're going to get to that, how iconic athletes have changed the discussion trajectory. But I kind of wanted to take a few moments and look at this topic from the consumer or the fans standpoint. So what are we really seeing when we enjoy watching an athlete at the peak of their performance powers? You know, we're seeing the culmination of that and we're enjoying the spectacle of that. And I mean, spectacle in in the most positive way. I mean, these people are just incredible experts and, and beautiful performers, but a lot's gone into that success and there's still whole people, whole individuals. So maybe the better question is what what should we see along with just the performance? What should we understand that's behind all of that that you see? Well, Jane, I might just start with that, you know, most athletes are young adults, which is the peak age of onset of all the psychiatric disorders other than dementias, but, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, um, even schizophrenia, you know, uh, the peak ages of onset are late teens to uh, mid-20s. And so athletes are humans, and like the rest of us, they're at risk of developing psychiatric disorders at this stage of their life. And as we've talked about, athletes also are facing often enormous challenges uh, when they're also trying to balance the demands of a rigorous academic program or the demands of uh, you know performing at a, at a very high level, as well as managing their social life, their family and personal relationships. There's so much that, that athletes are working on. So yes, most athletes have made a lot of sacrifices, put um, most of their time into training, really focus their, their lives around success in their career. But we have to keep in mind that you know, athletes first are, are, are human beings and that when we see them on TV, you may not be thinking about that. They uh, may have a husband or wife or children or romantic partner, maybe they uh, just broke up with somebody and, and they, you know, like any of us, that would have an impact on how we're feeling. And in addition, they're, you know, susceptible to developing depression or anxiety disorders and need high quality care, uh, as do all of us, in order to be able to function at their best and, and achieve the goals. Yeah, I think Doug said it really well. And I think uh, to us, what's probably more relevant is what you don't see on TV. You know, when you see someone run really fast or you see someone shoot a three-pointer from an impossible position, 
really you're seeing a snapshot of something that a human being is producing in a, in a discrete moment in time. And because in many societies, athletes are lionized, there's this sort of one dimensional role that we see athletes as taking. And it's the person who shoots the basketball or the person who swims really fast or the person who can catch, uh, you know, a fly ball that's going over the, over the stands. And I think what we don't see is just exactly what Doug was saying is that they're, they have entire lives that we're not privy to. And, and I think that's what makes it more jarring um, and probably more effective when you have high profile athletes talk about their individual experiences, because we're just not used to seeing that. And a lot of athletes for a multitude of reasons, whether it be stigma or whether it be for marketing purposes, they'll keep a little more mum about what's going on on the inside. And so, yeah, we're we're only seeing a very, very limited snapshot of each athlete. And we're seeing them as an athlete and not as a person. And so what Doug and I and our whole team is is focused on and all folks who take care of athletes are focused on is what else is going on there that we can we can help out with. Let's stay in the fan's head for a moment, the, the viewers or the consumers of um, athletics. Why do we as fans, and I would say as American fans, but, you know, I, I, watching international sports, I think it happens everywhere. Why do we attach such a, a depth of uh, identity or emotion? And at times I would have to say some irrational feelings to sports, to teams, to individual figures we go from adoration to criticism. So what, what is it that we are looking for in our athletes when we do that? Well, Jane, you asked some, you know, interesting questions that tap into sort of the sociobiology of, of human beings, right? The, the need for affiliation for us and them and in many ways, team sports that represent a city or a, or, or a university um, to represent identity and, you know, the way that we group ourselves and, uh, those athletes become part of us and our group and we feel like they're expressing for us some part of our identity and uh, that we share and of course at the olympic level it's representing a country uh you know if we play it at a very amateur level we may recognize how difficult it is to shoot a basket or to hit a, um, a golf ball and and to see someone who's put so much time and dedication in it, do it at a very precise, high-performance way, can be impressive and, and uh, something we admire, but also gets laden with all these other factors around choosing our favorites and wanting them to win and either idolizing or, or criticizing them for their performance when it happens. Yeah, Doug's right on the money there. And, and I think when it comes to individual athletes, a lot of times we end up identifying with them and then projecting ourselves onto them, which I think is tough and it's thankfully becoming a little tougher to do as more athletes are more communicative about themselves and their their actual selves as opposed to just their athletic persona but we like to think that athletes are whatever it is that we would like to be or we project onto them our own ethical or moral values and and priorities and desires and i think um something that we as people don't seem to be that great at doing is is uh, integrating the the many parts of a single person so for example with tiger woods when uh, the controversy came out about uh, some of the other parts of his personal life i remember being so interested that that so many people were shocked how can tiger woods have uh, this complicated personal life story and i mean really all, all that most people have ever known of tiger woods is that he is extremely good at hitting a golf ball 
other than that, we, we really don't know much about him. And so it's, it's just interesting how we layer on our own sort of desires or expectations onto athletes. And because they're such public figures, they, for better or for worse, bear the responsibility of those. Well, that brings us to very high profile uh, in recent times, athletes speaking out about their mental well-being and protecting it and honoring it. And, and the reaction, positive and, and critical, was, was really visceral. I'm talking about Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and earlier Michael Phelps. That adoration versus criticism, again, why so visceral? What is that about us? as sports fans, that we do that to these individuals who do have lives outside of their profession. Well, Jane, I'm going to turn it around a little bit and just uh, identify how many athletes and, you know, other celebrities identify sort of the, the loneliness and the isolation of being the person, you know, on the camera or in the, in the spotlight and uh, how so often they lose their privacy, their personal life and athletes uh, and other high-profile people often have felt they don't have choices around whether or not they perform this competition. Of course, you're at the Olympics, Simone Biles, you should, you know, uh, do every event that you qualified for because people would uh, give anything to have qualified for that event, as opposed to thinking about her as a person, you know, who has needs and, and who needs to make choices about how to balance the number of events that she performs in in order to you know, maintain her optimal performance and her mental health. You know, I think it, it, in some ways it's a reflection of our larger society. People in general are more willing to seek uh, care for mental health problems and identify them. Politicians sometimes uh, now talk about their own mental health challenges, celebrities and other major figures, and students in general. You know, the demand for mental health care on college campuses has really skyrocketed in, in recent decades, perhaps in part because of increasing challenges, but also in part because people are more willing to say, I need help rather than just uh, fall apart and drop out of school and, and never to be heard from again. And so athletes in some ways are a reflection of society and how our society uh, moves and adapts. And of course, prior to the recent phenomenon of athletes talking more publicly about their mental health problems, there have been athletes over uh, a number of decades who've used their position to bring attention to other important causes of fairness and, and uh, race relations and other important uh, topics in our society. And I think that in many ways this represents uh, mental health and the challenges of mental health being uh, you know, elevated to a position where people are comfortable to speak out about it. Dr. Dandekar, within the clinic, what have you seen with the athletes that you treat What's been the impact, positive or negative, with these high-profile sports figures coming out and talking about mental well-being, but also the critical response of fans? Have you seen a shift since that started? Is that opening in a door? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think Stanford, um, compared to a lot of um, universities in the U.S., is uh, quite progressive in terms of access to mental health and also how much mental health is promoted. I don't know that I've seen a drastic shift. I do think kind of countrywide and globally, there's been a shift. You know, because athletes are some of our heroes culturally. And, and if our heroes are coming out and saying, hey, I struggle with X, Y, and Z, then it makes it a little bit more okay for us. And you know, I think some of the critical reaction is we also don't want our heroes taken away from us. We, we do like the fantasy of the 
kind of inhuman human in a way. We, we like to be able to envision that there's someone who never gets stressed, who's never tired, who's never afraid of taking a shot. We like that because it gives us strength in some ways. And I, I think it makes it more complex for us to, you know, worship these figures if we also know that they are human like us. I think one of the things that, that happens a lot when we look at athletes is we say, well, if it were me, if I were Simone Biles and I had the chance to compete in four events or five events, uh, I wouldn't just compete in two. It's something that we don't realize we're doing. And it's also completely irrelevant and fallacious because, you know, yeah, hey, if you told me right now from sitting in my office, I can go and be at the Olympics, I'd say, hold, oh, that sounds great. There's nothing at stake for me. Um, if you take someone like Simone Biles who has to do this uh, all day, day in and day out, and has been doing this for the vast majority of her life, you know, it's a completely different picture. What about the systems in which athletes must operate? We know that professional sports is a business. We've all read about the NCAA troubles and how do we adequately compensate and protect college athletes. Olympians are in that in-between. They're sponsored, but they're amateurs. So are the systems within which they must perform getting rid of a little of this stigma too? I mean, are, are the iconic athletes talking about this, making a dent in the, the systems themselves, the coaches and the mentors and the medical business pressures, all of that? Well, coaches naturally are focused on coordinating a team so that it can achieve the best uh, results. And of course, when you read profiles of really successful coaches over time, they often have included a focus on the individuals who are part of that team and, and wanting to help them grow as human beings. It's been in the last few decades that it's generally become accepted in coaching circles that the athletes' mental health is an important part of their overall health and their performance. And so the fields of sports psychiatry and psychology have grown. They're still pretty small, but have, have grown as there's been greater acceptance in the athletic world that attending to mental health, attending to mindset and mental preparation are all important aspects of supporting athlete and team performance. What about the idea, though, of, of stepping away and not performing if that is part of mental well-being for a time? I mean, is that still a pretty radical idea within these systems? Because again, there are goals that are being met, either yeah. financial or status or recruitment. You know, definitely a radical idea. And of course, that's why these recent high pro profile situations uh, at the Olympics got so much attention. Of course, that means that particular event doesn't have, you know, a representative in it at that level. This is the challenge. And I think we're, we're forced to look at it as a society at this point, you know, how does the individual's needs balance against the sort of a larger team or a country's needs to stack up a certain number of medals and, and, and have certain outcomes. And, you know, my sense is the general consensus, certainly in the media and the, you know, the conversation that's, that has ensued is, is uh, admiration for these individual athletes who have stood up and said that taking care of myself is a first priority and that making this choice is important. Um, and there's been a tremendous amount of support for that, despite the fact that it may mean an impact on the medal count. You know, it is evolving on, on several different fronts. You know, you do have people caring more about athletes as people. You have coaches and managers and, and team owners caring more about their athletes as people. 
And from a business perspective, it's better for business if your athletes um, are mentally healthy. That means fewer missed games. It means fewer suspensions. It means better performance. There also is, I mean, there's money behind having athletes feel like they're okay, that they're integrated, that they're happy, that the rest of their lives are, are you know, as put together as, as any of our lives can actually be. And so that, I think that is another uh, sort of issue that the, the industry of, of professional athletics, um, even amateur athletics, is, is struggling with um, and trying to figure out is, you know, is this sustainable? If someone misses one game but then is able to play better in the next two games, does that mean we have a better shot at winning a title or winning a championship? And does that mean that we get more ad revenue? And there, there are all these forces at play, and you know, it, it also does depend on the sport. Even within the sport, it, it depends on the event. You know, you have, you know, with sports like, you know, it, many track and field events and, and swimming events, the um, the sprinters are the uh, the athletes who get more endorsement money, are the ones who get more visibility. Most people can say that Usain Bolt runs track. I don't think anyone could name the gold medal middle distance runner from the Tokyo Olympics. Mm-hmm. And um, ad dollars and, and sponsorships fall as well. So and there is also a you know, depending on your your stature in the sport or what event within a sport that you're you're performing, it's sort of like you look at a band. Most people know who the lead singer is. Not as many people can name the drummer. So there there are also kind of complex dynamics even within sports. Sure, that makes sense. I don't want to pigeonhole anyone or draw some type of caricature, but I'm wondering if there are some specific challenges that you might see more of in athletes because of the dedication, because of the single-mindedness, because of the discipline, and because of the anxiety over performance and drive, perhaps injuries? Are there, I don't know, specific mental health challenges that tend to crop up? You know, Jane, it's interesting. I think the other factor that's interfacing with the ones that you just described is the increasing ability to become single focused. Um, you know, I'm starting to um, read The Boys in the Boat, which is a biography of the uh, 1936 crew competition, the U.S. crew team uh, at the Olympics. And in that era, these were people who had so many other factors that, that, that they had to be attending to in their lives. Individuals often hadn't had an ability to prepare from a very early age and focus on a single sport and to practice that sport 12 months a year as society has evolved and we have the means to do so, you know, most athletes today have specialized at an extremely early age. They've had a singular focus on their sport to the exclusion of many other things. They often, um, you know, uh, tutor instead of attending regular schools. And, you know, you do see the impact of that bubble and, and that singular focus and missing out on all the other things that are part of childhood. Of course, Many of our Olympic athletes are under the age of 18 and performing in certain sports like gymnastics and, and, and tennis at you know, very young ages, facing the intense pressures of the spotlight. Dr. Dan Descartes is staying with this topic. Because an athlete is so body-focused, are there other specific, I don't know if I want to say pitfalls, but challenges, eating disorders that you might see or body dysmorphia or the pressure of performance um, some substance use issues uh, that sure yeah yeah I think with any high performing population you look at athletes um, physicians uh, Navy seals there's always that that sort of push towards being able to do more and and go 
past your your limits and yeah i mean substances definitely come into play you know i mean alcohol is one of the most consistently consumed anxiolytics in the world and and just because someone's an athlete doesn't mean that they also don't have anxiety and some folks um will use substances you know whether they're uppers or downers or there's a also the the push to use uh, performance enhancing drugs to, to to try to improve performance and whenever there's more pressure we're more likely to engage in things that you know we feel like are going to help us cope and and also help us um perform at our highest level you, you look at sports where you know bodies are on full display i mean there, there are a lot of sports um i think particularly for women where you're in a skin tight not very much and so there is a lot of pressure to look a certain way especially with the advent of social media where anyone with a keyboard can make a comment about your legs or your stomach or your shoulders or you know whatever it is and also it gets more complex because there are certain sports where where weight and body composition makes quite a big difference you get boxers and wrestlers who are who are cutting weight to make weight classes any athlete is probably going to benefit from having a little bit more lean muscle mass and a little bit less excess body fat. So it can get a little tricky to decide, you know, when is this turning into body dysmorphia or an eating disorder? And when is it, this is actually a performance enhancing track to go down. And, and, you know, that's where you got to really be um, aware as a clinician to each athlete's uh, individual idiosyncrasies to, Hey, I hear you that this is going to maybe help your performance. But we're taking this a little bit far, and, and actually we can see that your performance is, is going down. And this maybe isn't so much of a performance thing. It, it seems like it's more becoming um, you know, disorder eating or, or body dysmorphia or somewhere on the spectrum. Injuries have got to just be one of the biggest fears among athletes because that just stops them in their tracks. How do you help them deal with the fear of injury or coming back from injury or plan B if an injury is career ending that that specter must always be in their minds dr nordsey yeah and jane with college athletes you know career end is really imminent for most of the athletes we work with um both because uh sports that do have a an extension in the professional sports only a small portion of football players or basketball players are going to have that opportunity and and many sports don't have a professional level beyond college and so Right, both uh, injury and career end are big, have big impacts on athletes in terms of their identity. This singular focus that we've just been talking about, when that suddenly ends, then the person finds themselves at, you know, 20 something years old, having spent all their life becoming uh, the best swimmer they can be, and now having that void and, and trying to figure out what their life, you know, what their life is, what their meaning is. In fact, it's not that uncommon that students start to develop mental health challenges as part of their achievement of the Division I collegiate level, and then kind of saying, now what, right? And everything up until then has been pushing towards the goal, pushing towards the goal. And once they finally achieve it, they then find they're in college and you know their classmates are doing all these other diverse things that, that college includes, and they're sort of isolated to needing to focus on sport and academics. You know, that identity, both during participation and then particularly at the point of injury or at the point of, of career end, is something that uh, these individuals, these human beings, have to address and, and grapple with. And that can also be a driver of depression and anxiety or other emerging awareness in their evolution to adult life. 
Yeah. And um, I think it's important to, to figure out for each individual athlete what an injury means for them. I, uh, I learned early on that, you know, when you work with, with athletes, some of them actually are glad in a, in a certain way to be injured. I remember being surprised and you know, an athlete told me, like, hey, I'm, I'm really glad that I have this stress fracture because I can just kind of focus on school and maybe hang out with my friends and I don't have to practice 20 odd hours a week and travel every weekend and I'm on the, on the bus and I'm doing homework and my sleep is kind of disrupted and I'm in a hotel room with someone and, you know, hey, it's actually kind of nice to, to have a little bit of a breather. I, I think it's just important to, to really figure out from each athlete what, what that injury represents to them. For some, um, like Doug's been saying, it's, it's, it's world ending, you know, that the entirety of their identity is is wrapped up in being an athlete. And then when they no longer can do that, even if it's for just a brief period of time, even if you tell someone, hey, you're going to be back on the field on the court at full speed in a month or six weeks, it can be really, really jarring because some of these athletes say, well, then what, what do I do with myself? Like, what, what is my purpose if, if, not to, if not to be an athlete? So I, I think that the first step is just really figuring out, like, what happens now for you? What, what does this mean? Are you glad for it? Are you not glad for it? Are you upset? Are you hopeful you're going to recover? Do you think it's possible to recover? I mean, it also depends on the severity of the injury. Someone rolls their ankle. Yeah, probably you'll be out in a couple of weeks. If it's an ACL tear, that's going to be a longer thing. Some of these injuries you see on the football field, I mean, some, some of these guys take pretty big hits and, and they're out for over a year or two. And so it, it also depends on the specific injury and what the the time frame is and, and what the projected recovery level is. I mean, some people have injuries where you say, eh, it's almost certain you're going to get back to your former self athletically. And for some, it says, hey, you're going to be lucky if you walk again. And so that can also really dramatically influence the picture. Of course. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about brain injury with certain sports. I know you've both worked with college football and also professional those brain injuries, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a unique and serious avenue for psychiatrists as medical doctors, mind and body doctors, to be dealing with. Your feelings about that when you're helping these athletes and you know their, their brains are actually going to be physically at risk when they do what they do best. Yeah, this is something that we see both sides of, both the, um, you know, the very sad impact when someone experiences a significant concussion or brain injury that they don't recover from quickly and, and um, perhaps becomes career ending and just how much of an impact it has on that person's life to have their most important uh, body part, right, their brain not functioning properly. And of course, the other aspect is just the fear of it, right? And we've uh, worked with some athletes who had a parent who was in the same sport and maybe developed CTE and, and here they are playing the sport, feeling very concerned about uh, their own safety. Certainly, you know, the, the sort of bravado around those high impact sports is often to shrug it off and it's what we do and it's part of the game. Then when you get one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you often hear their more personal fear about, um, you know, all it takes is one more hit and that could not only end my career, but also have a real significant impact on, on my life, my life expectancy and my ability to be the person that I know myself as. Well, that's a fine line, isn't it, Dr. Dandekar, to, to have to, to want to lay it all out there on the field, just go for broke because that's who you are, but also this rational, very rational fear. That's a fine line. That's a tough thing. It's It's a really fine line. And some people feel a lot more pressure to kind of push the envelope there. If you take someone who is from a relatively well-to-do family, 
has some diverse interests says, Hey, I'll go into, I'll be a, a sports agent or I'll work in business or, you know, maybe I'll go back and get another degree in physics or whatever it is. There may be more options for someone to say, you know, I, I don't really know if this is worth it to me anymore. Whereas you get someone who came from a very low socioeconomic background and says, Hey, this is literally the only way I know how to actually make a living. If my body can still do it, then it's really hard to say, I'm going to turn down a salary on the off chance that I get a career or in some ways life-threatening brain injury, they may be more likely to roll the dice because they say, hey, this is this is kind of what I got and, and this is what I'm really good at. Doug and I work with a lot of uh, football players at a lot of different levels and, and it, it's it's really tough. It, there, there are a lot of pressures either way. I mean, you, you have guys say, I'm really scared of not ever being myself again. And I'm also really scared of not doing the thing that I'm best at in the world. And it's a really, really tricky choice to make. You've both given us as fans, um, spectators, so much more to think about when we see these people that we admire. And uh, as you said, on social media and uh, otherwise anonymously criticized, it's just been a really wonderful eye opener to see these people as our neighbors and our friends and as whole people. And I know you have patients you need to see in a few minutes, and you've been very generous with your time. I've got one final question. As we talk about the healthy emotional development of aspiring athletes, we've already discussed the systems and and even as young kids, how sometimes they have to leave home to be mentored if they really want to go far in sports and uh, not attend school regularly or whatever the, the sacrifice is. If you could intercept these aspiring athletes and their families as children, what would you try to instill in them in terms of preparation and prevention for the mental health challenges that are going to come? Well, Jane, you know, having watched my own children go through uh, youth sports, I'm really impressed with the attempts of the sports systems and the coaching programs to really try to instill appropriate values around participating in sport for fun, for development in a way that's balanced. And I think the thing I would most encourage people to do is to you know, make sure that the developing athlete still has the opportunity to have a balanced life, to be able to have those you know, once-in-a-lifetime experiences that they might otherwise sacrifice if they only focus on their sport. And as Francesco said, there are these difficult decisions that children and young athletes and families need to make about at what point do you break away from sport as fun, sport as um, introduction to a lifetime of athletics into a place where you're trying to take it more seriously and turn it into a career. And, you know, again, one has to take that very seriously, that trying to go to a very high level means that you're changing the meaning of sport from fun, pleasure, uh, the opportunity to be part of a team into becoming a career. And, and a career is a very different thing and creates all of these pressures that we've been talking about today. So keeping that in balance, trying to help make sure that there's recognition that a whole person, a balanced person is going to be able to carry many things further relative to the larger physical and emotional development of the individual. Dr. Dandekar, what would you tell kids and especially parents as, as they're embarking on a potentially promising athletic career? I think the biggest thing is being aware of the trade-offs that, that, that have to happen. I, mean, to, I think to be extremely good at anything, whether it's sports or um, whether you're a chess grandmaster or, you know, whether you're the CEO of a company or, you know, 
whatever it is, if you want to be extremely good at something, other things kind of have to go. Just by dint of the fact that we only have so many hours in a day and we only have so many resources available at our disposal. So I think just being aware of what those trade-offs are and then like Doug is saying, try to bolster the parts of a kid that are not going to get as developed just because they're spending so much time specializing in one thing. Just from a pure sports performance standpoint, athletes who uh, were multi-sport athletes as kids tend to do better in their chosen sport as young adults and adults. And we're kind of just figuring this out recently. We used to think, hey, put your kid in the sport he or she's going to play and have them dedicate all that time to that. If you're, if you're going to be a figure skater, why would you spend any time playing soccer? And really what we've seen is that the kids who are exposed to a multitude of different athletic contexts end up being overall better athletes and better able to perform at their sport. And, and so likewise, you know, if we're allowing kids to also develop socially, also to have their own time to be creative or to read or, or nurture and develop other, you know, maybe latent interests or talents, and they're going to be more well-rounded people and then most likely be able to perform better as well. And yeah, I think, I think the diversification is very important. You know, your first question was about like, is everything we do performance enhancing? And, and I think it, in some ways at the beginning, the, the selling point is, hey, this is going to help your performance. And, and what we find is that people end up saying, wow, like, I'm just a lot happier. I like my life more. Well, as Dr. Dandekar points out, this does bring us full circle in today's discussion. My thanks once again to Dr. Douglas Nordsey and Dr. Francesco Dandekar of the Stanford Sports Psychiatry and Sports Psychology Program and the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. If you are an athlete or have one in your life, we hope you found this interesting and helpful. Or if you're like so many of us who are simply fans, perhaps this discussion has given you some insight into your favorite sports figures as people, wholly human. Please come back for our next What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind? Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.